The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, the Parthenon marbles. Will secret talks lead to their repatriation to Greece? Plus, art and heritage under the Taliban in Afghanistan. And Kiki Smith tells us about her murals for the new Grand Central Madison Terminal in New York. It's emerged that George Osborne, the former UK Chancellor, who's now Chair of the Trustees of the British Museum, has been holding secret talks with the Greek government about the Parthenon marbles. So might this lead to a breakthrough in the long-running dispute over their ownership? I speak to Yanis Andritsopoulos, the reporter from the Greek newspaper Tanea, who broke the story. In Afghanistan, it's more than a year since the Taliban reclaimed power. So what's become of the heritage projects and art community in the country, which is consumed by a devastating humanitarian crisis? I speak to Savi Geranpaya, who's regularly reported from Afghanistan for the art newspaper about art and archaeology under the Taliban. And this episode's Work of the Week is a group of five murals by the German-born US artist Kiki Smith, which are about to be unveiled at Grand Central Madison, the new Long Island Railroad terminal below Grand Central on Madison Avenue in Manhattan. Kiki tells us about the origin and development of the series of vast mosaics. Before all that, a reminder about our latest subscription offer. You can save more than 50% when you buy a complete print subscription to the art newspaper with full digital access as a gift for a friend, a colleague or even as a treat for yourself. Visit theartnewspaper.com, click subscribe and enter the code XPOD22. That's X-P-O-D-22, all in caps. And if you'd like to receive the January edition of the paper, make sure that you subscribe before this Monday, 12th of December. Do also subscribe to this podcast and our sister podcast a brush with wherever you're listening. Now, the saga of the Parthenon marbles in the British Museum has rumbled on for generations. It has seemed likely that the gap between the Greek and British governments would remain unbridgeable, since the Greeks claim that the marbles were taken illegally by Lord Elgin in the 19th century, and the British maintain that the museum's ownership of the marbles is legal, and anyway, that an Act of Parliament would be required if they were to be returned. But the Greek newspaper Tanea has exclusively revealed that secret talks have been held between George Osborne, the chair of the British Museum, and various senior Greek politicians, including the Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis. So, might an agreement be in sight? I spoke to Yanis Andritsopoulos, the Tanea reporter who broke the story about what he discovered. Yanis, your report in Tanea revealed the secret talks between George Osborne, the chair of the British Museum, and the Greek government. What did you learn from what you were told about those talks? That's correct. We revealed last Saturday that George Osborne has been holding secret talks with Greek Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis and indeed two other Greek government ministers over the last 13 months to negotiate the possible return of the Parthenon marbles. A couple of Greek Sources told me that the return of Phidias' masterpieces to Greece was the only topic on the agenda and they added that the aim uh, was for both sides to reach a solution that could be mutually beneficial to both Greece and Britain under a win-win solution as they put it. And does this significantly change what's happened before in the sense of the British Museum's position? We'll come to the UK government in a bit but is this any different from the way that the British Museum have handled it in the past? 
Mm-hmm. Yes, there's certainly a substantial difference. I didn't need to remind you that the last time that the two sides held talks was exactly 20 years ago. It was in November 2002 when the then Culture Minister of Greece, Evangelos Venizelos, held talks with the then British Museum Director, not the Chair of the Trustees. It was the Director Neil McGregor. And then uh, the talks lasted just one hour. <laughs> But now the, the, the talks have lasted uh, more than 13 months and I understand that there has been significant progress in those negotiations, but that doesn't mean that uh, they will conclude anytime soon. We don't know that. Do you know anything about the nature of that progress that's been made? For instance, what kind of things are being discussed? So the, the two sides, and, and this is again according to Greek sources only, actually the talks themselves have been verified to me by British sources as well, but those British sources didn't say anything about the nature of the talks. So according to Greek government officials, the two sides have been negotiating the possibility of a long-term cultural partnership between the British Museum and Greece. This hopefully will allow the sculptures reunification in the Acropolis Museum while enabling the British Museum to host rotating exhibitions of Greek treasures never seen before outside Greece. Now, the Greek government believes that George Osborne is maybe he's not yet convinced to hand the marbles back to Greece, but he appears to be open to that possibility, again, according to Greece. The interesting thing about this is, of course, that the position of the UK government is that legally the British Museum own the Parthenon marbles. What does the Greek government say about that? Do they dispute that there is legal ownership? Yes, they do. That's correct. The British Museum has been claiming to have legal title to the Parthenon sculptures. Greece, however, maintains that the museum is not the legal owner of the sculptures. Actually, if you look back at public statements made by cultural ministers of Greece, they have accused Lord Elgin of being a thief, of, of stealing the marbles, so they don't recognize that the British Museum owns those marbles. The interesting thing here is that, according to those Greek officials, there are several solutions that are being considered actively that could set aside, as they put it, the ownership issue in a possible deal. They said that there are ways to avoid mentioning ownership in an agreement on the marbles' return. So effectively you're saying it's a matter of diplomatic language, that the marbles could find their way back to the Acropolis Museum, but they wouldn't necessarily have a sentence in the agreement that said they are now owned by the Greek government or by a Greek entity. That's correct. If, and I stress, if (laughs) this arrangement goes ahead, both sides think that there is a way of putting aside ownership so that the marbles could be reunited in Athens, but nobody will mention in that agreement, at least in the text of such an agreement, who owns what. But another sticking point is how long the marbles will remain in Greece, if returned, because, as you know, Greece wants them there forever. It is seeking a permanent reunification with the rest of the marbles that are currently in the Acropolis Museum in Athens. But the British Museum has so far been talking about alone and that means a permanent return. So I understand that they have not yet reached an agreement on that issue, which is, of course, very crucial. Would the Greek government accept a temporary loan? Would they say, "Okay, this is a bit of progress, we'll take them on loan for the moment and keep the negotiations going? Or do they only want to see the marbles returning permanently? 
Mm-hmm. As things stand, the answer to your first question is no, they will not accept a temporary return of the marbles uh, because they say that it only makes sense to have them reunited with the rest of the monument permanently. But I understand that among the solutions that uh, are under discussion is constantly renewable loan. Of course, it would entail the British side to accept that solution as well. But I understand that Greece could be happy with such an arrangement if there is a guarantee that the mobs will not go back to London. Okay. Now, there's an interesting precedent to a kind of arrangement like this that you detail in your piece, which is called the Palermo model. Can you explain a bit more about that? Sure. This is actually a solution that is under consideration between Greece and the UK, the so-called Palermo model. That was a, a fragment of the Parthenon marbles, actually of the Parthenon temple, known as the Fagan fragment, which was deposited to the Acropolis Museum in January 2022 for four years. It was deposited by the Antonino Salinas Museum in Palermo with a renewal option for another four years. So the original plan was to stay in Athens for eight years, if possible. However, five months later, the Greek culture minister, Dr. Lina Mendoni, announced publicly that the fragment will permanently stay in Athens because, as she said, she had reached a deal with the government of Sicily and the Italian culture ministry. So a similar model, according to those Greek sources, could be applied to the return of the marbles that are currently in London. And is your sense that the Greek government sounds confident? Because it's absolutely right to the top of government, isn't it? The Prime Minister of Greece is talking to George Osborne, as well as other senior members of the government. Yes, that's true. Uh, actually, the, the officials that talked to me a few days ago said that an agreement is 90% complete, but that a critical, a very critical 10% remains unresolved. It's hard to get there, but it's not impossible, the official said. So I would say, having spoken to many Greek officials over the past few weeks and actually months, that they are cautiously optimistic. They think that George Osborne is willing to discuss that possibility, but they're not absolutely confident, they're not convinced that a deal will be reached in the coming months. They say, let's wait and see. Right. There are a couple of sticking points, it seems to me, on the British side. The first one is that George Osborne, in a very recent speech, talked about how this generation couldn't, with all good conscience, see the dismantling of major collections in Britain. And he seemed to be hinting that that might have something to do with the Parthenon marbles. And then the other one is that the British government, the spokesman for Rishi Sunak, has said that there are no plans to change the law. And it seems to me that if those two things are still are sort of present in the minds of the British side of this, how on earth could that extra 10% that you just talked about be reached? That's a very valid point. Actually, what we've been seeing over the past few days is the British government reiterating its long-standing position that the Parthenon marbles are legally owned by the British Museum trustees, and this is not a matter for the government. And as you rightly pointed, they also reiterated that they have no plans in changing the law. They're talking about the British Museum Act that prohibits the British Museum from deaccessioning objects. The thing is that if, and again I stress, if one of the solutions we just discussed is applied, there's no need for the law to be changed. I mean, if we follow the Palermo model or a similar model, then the marbles will go back to Greece without a change of law needed. Another point is that I've spoken to the former culture secretary of the UK, Ben Bradshaw, 
a few days ago and he told me that if you manage to convince Osborne and the British Museum and if he's willing to hand the marbles back to Greece, then he finds it extremely easy for the UK government and the UK parliamentarians to be convinced as well. He said that if Osborne says, yes, I'm happy with such an arrangement, then the British MPs would vote for the marbles return. That's what he said, at least. It seems to me that that is a strength for the Greek argument in the current setup, because also another supporter of the return is Ed Vasey, who is also a culture minister. So you have cross-party, as in a Labour former culture secretary and a Conservative former culture secretary, both involved in this process and supporting the return of the marbles. That would seem a different position for Britain to be in compared to previous generations, would you say? Yes, that's absolutely right. And actually, both gentlemen, uh, Lord Ed Vasey and Ben Bradshaw, are now members of the advisory board of an organization called the Parthenon Project, who advocates a win-win solution for both Britain and Greece for the return of the marbles. And actually, what's interesting is that Ben Bradshaw also told me that he knows that under Boris Johnson, a deal over the Parthenon marbles return was almost there. Ah, that's interesting. <laughs> um, do you know anything about that? What nature that took? Did it conform to any of the models that we're talking about? Or do you know any details at all? Sadly, I don't. <laughs> he didn't elaborate, but that, that I found it interesting as well. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. How tantalising. Last question. I'm going to ask you to take a punt. Do you think we're going to see a resolution or do you think the impasse is going to continue? Well, I'm convinced that the marbles will go back to Greece in the future. I think that this is inevitable. I I can't support that with evidence. What I'm not convinced of is that this will happen very soon. I would not see it happening in the coming months. Well, I, I hope it will, but I'm not that sure. But I'd say that in the coming years it will happen. That's my sense. Yanis, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It was a pleasure. You can hear more about the marbles and the history of this dispute in my conversation with Alexander Herman, the director of the Institute of Art and Law, in the episode of this podcast from the 21st of February 2020. And you can read more about this story at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for Android or iOS, which you can download from Google Play or the App Store. Coming up, art and heritage under the Taliban in Afghanistan and Kiki Smith on her New York mosaics. But first, here's this week's news bulletin. Veronica Ryan has won the 2022 Turner Prize. It was announced at St George's Hall in Liverpool, UK, on Wednesday. Ryan, who made a group of sculptures in London for a commission celebrating the Windrush generation of immigrants to the UK from the Caribbean, was praised by the judging panel for the personal and poetic way she extends the language of sculpture and the noticeable shift in her use of space, colour and scale, both in gallery and civic spaces. After winning the prize, a jubilant Ryan, who was born on the Caribbean island of Montserrat but moved to the UK, as a toddler, punched the air and exclaimed the words power and visibility. The 66-year-old artist said that she'd been around for a long time and that there were 20 years in which she'd received no attention and made work from rubbish. 
The German painter Gerhard Richter, one of the most celebrated and expensive living artists, is now represented exclusively by David Zwerner, the gallery revealed on Wednesday. Richter has shown with Marion Goodman Gallery for several decades and has had five solo exhibitions with Gagosian over the past decade, though he was never represented by the gallery. Zwerner described himself as humbled to be given the opportunity, adding that it was an immense honour and great privilege and acknowledging the important work Goodman has done over 37 years representing the knowledge artist. Richter's first solo show with David's Werner Gallery will be at one of its Manhattan spaces in March 2023. And finally, the Inhotim Institute, Brazil's largest outdoor contemporary art museum, has removed an untitled work by the Brazilian artist Maxwell Alexandre from an exhibition following critical social media posts by the artist. Alexandre wrote on the 30th of November that he was embarrassed by the communication of the exhibition Quilombo, Life, Problems and Aspirations of the Black. He said that his work and his concept were used without his consent as a central part of the show and that he only found out at the last minute. Despite expressing his dissatisfaction, he said that Inhotim, quote, didn't respect me, they ran over me and called for the organisation to remove the work. It finally did so a week after he published the post. You can read all these stories and much more on the website or the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. The Classic Week auction series continues at Christie's London, celebrating art from antiquity to the 20th century. See history in a new light from the collection of Marvin L. Kolker and valuable books and manuscripts to British and European art. This season's highlights include a rare papyrus of Babylonian lunar theory in Greek and a beautiful copy of Gerard Mercator's 1595 Atlas alongside a 1577 Portland chart of the Mediterranean, John William Waterhouse, Houses, Gather Ye Rosebuds, While Ye May, and important works by Gustav Corbet, Dame Laura Knight, and many more. Live and online auctions run until the 15th of December, with a pre-sale exhibition now open at 8 King Street in the heart of the St James's District in London. Entry is free and open to the public. Visit christies.com to find out more. Welcome back. Now, it's more than a year since the Taliban regained control of Afghanistan following the withdrawal of US and allied military forces from the country. But the fate of Afghan heritage and its art communities is uncertain. On the one hand, Italy has announced that it's considering resumption of its projects in Bamiyan after they were abruptly placed on hold when the Taliban took over in August 2021. But on the other, the German government has cancelled its contract with the Aga Khan Trust for Culture for the Kabul Riverfront transformation. UNESCO and other organisations have outlined the significance of the humanitarian assistance provided through cultural projects and their ability to work within the boundaries of global sanctions placed on the new Afghan government. Savi Garanpaya has been reporting on events in Afghanistan for the art newspaper over recent months and I spoke to her about heritage and art under the Taliban. Savi, can you give us a sense of the scale of the humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan at the moment? I don't know if the word catastrophic quite explains it or describes it. There are no jobs. People have no income. And that's across the board, across the entire country. So the only jobs that are really around are government positions. So if you work for the government in any of the institutes that run the country, yes, you have some sort of salary. Uh, In most places, you'll find salaries have been cut back. 
So if I was to think about the uh, lecturers at Kabul University in the art section, their salaries have been cut back enormously. It's just not enough. The people who are getting these salaries, it just isn't enough to live on. And then when you travel in the country, if you go into the rural areas, then really you're relying on what you're growing and what you can eat from what you grow. And just life in rural Afghanistan is not easy. Never has been, but more so now. So according to UN, over half the population struggle to know where the next meal is coming from. That's 23 million people. It's difficult. And that has knock-on effects. So if you are poor, if you don't know where your next meal is coming from, you will resort to anything, crime or dishonesty, let's say. These things will become more common in society. And it's really sad. You'll see many children begging in the streets. The, the number of children that were putting their hands out, just looking for something, anything you could give them. So it's really sad. And how can heritage projects help with this? Of course, we're not saying it's a panacea, it's anything that can make much more than a drop in the ocean, but how can heritage projects or how did they help with this process? So when we talk about heritage projects, you have to think about Afghanistan has its home to some really rich historic sites. There's so much in Afghanistan that still hasn't been discovered. Um, there are about 2,000 sites, I think, registered. They think it's probably over 5,000 sites that can be registered as historic sites. And obviously these sites, if we want to learn about history, if we want to learn about where we came from, what happened during our past, all our pasts, history is shared in the world. Um, if we want to learn about all these things, then we have to preserve these sites. And in preserving these sites, you are creating heritage projects that create employment. And there are different aspects to this. So you can have projects that are just about, I say just about, it's not trying to undermine it, it's important, preservation. But then there are projects that are about transforming the site and reusing it. So you're giving back to the community, you're putting that site into use, creating employment and introducing that community to their history, to their culture, or the culture that they had a link to or have a link to. So it's very important to keep these heritage projects going. And it's important for history as well as if you look at it from a humanitarian perspective. And the interesting thing about heritage projects after the Taliban's return is that, of course, there are certain restrictions in terms of for instance, UNESCO and other agencies in terms of what can be done in the form of heritage projects because, of course, the government isn't recognised and so on. So the funds that are going towards heritage projects can't be seen to go into the pockets of the government, right? Yes, in short. <laughs> it's a very complicated situation. Everything about Afghanistan is complicated and this is no exception. But we have to remember this is a problem that's created by us. <laughs> this particular problem, when we're talking about culture and we're talking about heritage and we're talking about projects to do with culture and heritage, is created by, we can say in this instance, UN or the international community. The officials in Afghanistan have zero problem, zero, with investment in heritage projects. In fact, they welcome it. 
So you're saying that the Taliban government, who we have seen in the past, in 2001, when they destroyed the Bamiyan Buddhas, are actively pro-heritage conservation today? Yes, at the moment. Yes, that's what I've heard over and over and over from senior officials in the government in Afghanistan. That's what I witnessed, in fact, from the projects at least that I visited. I didn't see any new projects started. I saw projects that had been placed on hold after August 2021 that had restarted. And the people who were working on the projects, the, the organizations that were working on the projects, such as Agahan Trust for Culture, they still have a few projects that they're finishing, such as Achko or Hafo. There's only a handful of organizations that are at the moment working in the field of culture in Afghanistan. They would all say the same thing. They have the support of the government. Their issue is not with the Taliban government. They all say, we support it. We will give you whatever you need. Come and help us. I, I was speaking to an official today, in fact, Ben, and the statement I have from him says, we welcome it. We support anyone from the international organization who has the expertise and the experience to work in Afghanistan to come and help us preserve Afghan heritage and historic sites. So on the one hand, you have countries like Italy who are mulling over whether to continue funding projects, right? But on the other hand, we have an announcement from the German government that it is ceasing funding to a particular project in Kabul, right? Like I said, it's a very complicated situation. It's a mess. There doesn't seem to be a unified approach. I hope that changes. But I think all of that comes from, can we say the top, what has been decided, which is we're not recognizing this government, whatever that means. Because not recognizing this government officially doesn't make any sense to me when we see European officials sit with officials from the Taliban government. If that is not recognition, then I don't know what is. Right. So it's a form of diplomacy, yes. but not official recognition. Whatever that means, <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. But you can understand the reservations, can't you? I mean, there was that video that went viral last week, that appalling video of a Taliban man brutally beating a woman in the street in Afghanistan. And also there's a history of problems relating to trusting the Taliban's word. Why should we believe, given their previous record, that the Taliban will look after heritage? Well, you're absolutely right. I'm not suggesting for a moment that reservations should be removed. I'm not saying there should be 100% trust. But you have to start somewhere. And where we are now, we're seeing cooperation. They say they want to preserve it. I visited pre-Islamic sites in Afghanistan, Buddhist sites. Work is going on. No one is harassing the people who are working on these sites. In fact, they're supporting them. The Taliban have given them security to make sure they don't have any issues in terms of whether it's looting or harassment by someone that might feel differently, let's say, about pre-Islamic sites, might think that a Buddhist site shouldn't be something that should be preserved. So... Those are the actions they've taken so far. And those are positive steps. And dialogue surely is the way forward. Cultural diplomacy surely is the way forward. Because not speaking to them, not having a relationship, what does that achieve? What have we achieved in, it's been over a year that they've been in power 
and the government has not been recognized. Their money has been cut off, so the Afghan reserves, they had been cut off from having access to the Afghan reserves. Sanctions are in place. What has that achieved, actually? Mm -hmm. What we have seen is hardliners becoming more powerful and placing more restrictions on women. That's what we have seen, yes. So can we argue that that's actually as a result of the isolation? And if you have these cultural projects, if you have these heritage projects, then actually you can have some sort of a bargaining chip. Because at the moment, I, I don't see what we have to negotiate with. Right. The videos you mentioned, and we will see these from time to time on the Internet. And yes, they're horrific. But I would also ask, did this happen before as well? It's not excusing it. But is this something new when we are speaking about Afghanistan? It's not okay. It is not okay in any way, shape or form. But can we influence that if we have dialogue, if we have cultural diplomacy, if education goes in and violence towards women is something that can be targeted through cultural projects? Maybe that's something to consider. I wanted to ask about the German funding for this project in Kabul, because this is quite illustrative in terms of the numbers of people who were employed on that project, but now aren't. Can you give us a sense of that? It's horrific. 1,600 people were actively working on the site, is what I was told. So they were laborers. So these people completely lost their jobs, their livelihood. And I guess to some extent, perhaps some thought it was something that would restart. It was on hold and uh, it would restart. And that's not even taking into consideration the technical people in the offices that worked on these projects, including women. So there were women involved in these projects from the Office for Engineers, Archaeologists, and so on. And yep, the jobs are all gone. On top of that, if the project had finished, or if, if funding wasn't cut off, and I think it was due to finish this year, then it would have created more permanent employment through the end result. So it was supposed to be a place for retail, for trade. Um, it was multi-purpose. It's a beautiful place, actually. And, and modernization, it was a really clever way of converting that area, which when you stand on the carrot site, as they call it, you look around and you've got the hillsides. The residentials on the hills in Kabul form Kabul. There's no order to them. But they really make what Kabul is all about. And they are hugely underdeveloped, which this project actually, as part of it, helped in bringing infrastructure that they desperately needed. So they overlook, so you're, you're standing in the middle of this site and you overlook these houses, these residential areas. And the idea was that people from these areas, these underdeveloped, these poorer parts of town would have access to somewhere like this site, which had modern pods. And so it would essentially be some sort of, I don't want to call it a market because that's not what it was, but certainly a point of trade. And there was supposed to be an art gallery in the middle. And to have an art gallery so accessible to people from all walks of life and landscape area, greenery, there was so much to this project that could have really benefited the whole neighborhood and Kabul as a whole. And involved in that, and in fact still managing the site, is the Aga Khan Trust for Culture, yes. right? And that's a prime example of the kind of organisations that were involved in 
cultural projects in Afghanistan pre the Taliban who are kind of in a state of limbo to a certain degree because lots of the funding that they needed, lots of the kind of processes that they were engaged in have either been cut short or placed on hold, etc. So they're in a difficult position themselves, aren't they? Yes, yes. They're in an extremely difficult position. I think someone put it to me as we have to continue with our work, but with our hands tied behind our backs. That's how someone described it to me. And they're continuing on. They want to continue with their work. They see it as certainly as what I've been told when speaking to Agahan Trust for Culture representatives. That's what that's the message they've continuously said, which is it is important to work here. It is important to have dialogue and we will continue with our work. And another Agahan Trust project that you went to visit is this extraordinary art centre in Herat province. And in this piece, you met artists and you attended this art centre. Tell us what you found there. Yes, it was a bizarre experience, very pleasant, but bizarre. I came out of Echtiaruddin Citadel, which is this magnificent citadel in the old uh, Herat. And uh, the people I was with kept saying to me, let's go to a hammam, let's go to a hammam. And hammam is a bathhouse. Okay, let's go to this bathhouse. And I get to this hammam, and there's an art gallery or an art center. Art galleries in Afghanistan also, we have to remember, are different from what we think about. Most art galleries are also art centers. So they're not just somewhere that you have art to see or to buy. They are also a place that you learn art. So, yeah, you walk in and it's beautiful. It's called Malik Cistern and it used to be, I guess, the water reservoir for this area. And the conservation work to uh, rebuild it was done by Yachon Trust for Culture. And it was opened in 2009. And the gentleman who took it over, it's technically under the Ministry of Information and Culture, but they gave it to this artist, Ibrahim Habibi, who runs it as an art center. He has run it since 2009 with his family. And he teaches calligraphy, penmanship, and art classes six days a week and it's segregated it's always been segregated this is not a taliban uh, enforcement it's always been that way and it was really interesting i love it so much i went the entire time i was in harat i actually visited this space it's just so beautiful and it was just so calming and so it was just such a contradiction to everything. <laughs> you go from this bazaar into this art center, from all this hecticness to this peaceful place and people have their heads down and they're working away in their arts. And of course, there's a day that it's for women or every other day. So I met about 15, uh, later more, of women who were girls and women who were working there, practicing, trying to become artists. And he actually said the number of women taking art classes has gone up in the last year. And that's because of the lack of opportunities that are available to women. That's right. And, and you met, for instance, a former student who could no longer attend school and a former teacher who needed to keep busy, needed to keep a kind of intellectual stimulation. Is that right? Yes. I mean, of course, these are all stories that we've all seen, we've heard, but to actually see it firsthand, it's quite moving. A 17-year-old who was in her final year of school and suddenly couldn't finish school anymore, but she loved art so much. That's what she'd hoped she would continue at university. You know, she found her way, which was to come here to this centre and continue learning art in hopes 
that something will change and she can go on to do what she wants to do. Yes, this teacher, because girls' schools have closed from the age of, I think, 13, so year six upwards, she'd lost her job. But uh, she wanted to, yeah, keep busy. And one of the things she said to me, which was really moving, she said, I really hope, she knew I was writing the article, I hope someone will listen to the broken hearts of Afghan women. And it was just the way she said it. And all you could do was really just reassure them that things would get better and there is hope and not to give up and just continue doing what they were doing. Because, of course, it's, at times they did question whether they should continue doing what they were doing. But it's, it's sad, but promising at the same time to see that women are trying to find their ways and there are outlets for them. And I hope these outlets grow and continue the last thing we want to say is not being able to even take art classes. Luckily, it's not going that way. I'm following up with the woman and I hear that they're actually planning for an exhibition. So hopefully, hopefully things will get better. Salvi, thank you so much for talking to us on the podcast. Thank you. You can read Sarvi's reports on Afghanistan on the website or the app. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. Later this month, Grand Central Madison will open. It's a new 65,000 square metre terminal for the Long Island Railroad, below the historic Grand Central Terminal, with its celebrated ceiling of constellations designed by the architect Whitney Warren and the painter Paul César Elieu. The artworks for the new terminal, commissioned by MTA Arts and Design, include murals by Yayo Kusama and photographs by Paul Pfeiffer. But for the work of the week, we're going to concentrate on a suite of mosaics by Kiki Smith. Five murals by Smith at a total of more than 130 square metres of glass mosaics can be found throughout the new terminus and relate to her experiences in Long Island. The East River in River Light, the beach in the Waters Way, a deer in Woodland in the Presence, wild turkey in the Spring and in in the sound, the estuary between Long Island and Connecticut. I spoke to Kiki Smith about the murals. Kiki, I read that your approach to this commission was to imbue the murals with affection and personal significance. Can you say more about that? Well, I wanted to make something for the commuters or the people that take the train that are coming from Long Island, which is outside of the city where, you know, there's a great deal of nature. And, you know, people choose to live there for various reasons. But, you know, part of it is that their proximity to nature and that it is, you know, people with families and stuff, a nice place to raise children. And I live outside of the city also now. So, I wanted to make images from nature that connect people to their homelands and then going back to their homeland. So it's like a, a little respite or something in the middle of a commute. And, you know, there are things that I respond to in the nature where I live and that have correlations to the nature of Long Island. Because the train station connects the Long Island Railroad to the east side of Manhattan, which is a very big deal. Normally they go to Penn Station and then they have to travel east again. 
Uh, whereas this gives them the opportunity to maybe save an hour, hour and a half or something every day in, in their commute, which is enormous. The image with the deer that's called the presence. I know that relates to a tapestry work that you made in the past, which you related to autumn. And of course, there's also an image here called spring, which features wild turkey. So is the whole scheme in, in a way relating to seasons? I don't know if I ever thought about it relating to the seasons, particularly. It would have been good since I was making four tapestries, but I don't think I thought of it. But I'm quite often in my work, like the drawing of the deer. I made the original drawing from visiting the Peabody Museum at Harvard in 1994, and I made it into a photo etching. And I'm using that image in a million things, sculptures, and I've used it in probably 20 different drawings, and then also in the tapestries. And so I'm doing that with a great deal of my work, kind of turning over images that you know, I always think it's like showing a different facet of something, you know, like a cut stone. Absolutely. And it's the same with the image, which is called River Light as well, because I know that there was a group of cyanotypes that you made in the past that that relates to. Say more about that. I made a film of the East River maybe in 2004 for an exhibition I had at the Guarini Stampaglia in Venice. And then about two or three years later, I made stills from the film and then made them into cyanotypes. I etched on plexiglass, I made those into cyanotypes, and then I made them into flags for an exhibition, and I made them into a blanket for a a chapel, and now I made them into the big mosaic. So it's very much to my work to do that. You know, each year maybe I add one or two images to kind of a repertoire, but I like that, you know, it's like having an alphabet that you keep revisiting and reconstructing into different narratives. And here there's this lovely balance. And, and in fact, it appears all the way through the commission between the earth and the skies, the celestial and the earthbound. Yeah. Tell me more about that. Does it relate directly to the Grand Central Terminal ceiling, that celestial ceiling? The Grand Central ceiling is one of the most iconic images in New York. You know, the Penn Station was torn down in the 60s, and that was our other great building in New York. I mean, there's several others, but that's one that the people really inhabit, you know, on a daily basis. I mean, there's thousands upon thousands of people in Grand Central Station every day. And, you know, and that ceiling is really iconic ceiling. And I'm very attracted to the night sky, just my, you know, personally and myself. And so it's something that always preoccupies me. And, you know, so putting the, you know, light of the river, you know, it is, it's the sun casting stars on the river. You go under the river coming from Long Island to Manhattan. Like to get to Manhattan, you have to go under the river. But then there is this starlight created by the sun. The waterway also I made where I didn't want to really separate the sky and the water from one another, that one runs into the other or runs out of the other. And so when one looks at the murals as a group, I've got them on my screen now. I'm looking at all five of them together. And one thing I really love about them is that they seem to allude to all of your 
media in a way. We talked about the cyanotypes earlier on, but also there's a lovely feel in the work called The Sound of drawing and painting. We've also got the kind of collage effect of several of the works. So one of the things I love about it is, yes, these are a series of mosaics, but also they they draw in your wider practice. It's almost like there's a summation here going on. They're very directly made from collage of images that I've made before or images that I made for it. And then they're physically collaged. Like I first make like a cartoon, you know, pretty much life size for what I'm doing. And I like to keep the collage aspect of it. I like that there's a kind of artifice of disruption sort of in it, you know, that it's not really like seamless pictures. But then I worked very closely with Magnolia Editions in California, who I made the tapestries with to do the computer work because we're very good. Uh, Guy Nicholas Price and I have a very good working relationship where I send him these collages and I sent him disparate pieces of things. And then we start constructing also in the computer. They're constructed from all of these pieces put together. And then we work at a third scale and I make a lot of corrections and repainting of things. And then I send it back to him. We go back and forth about three times, you know, me making painting corrections and then us working together in the computer. And after that, we sent it to Meyer of Munich, which is a stained glass and mosaic workshop for the last several hundred years and who I've worked with for 25 years doing stained glass painting. And so we also have a very good working relationship. And then it took two years. I worked with 30 mosaics, mostly from Italy, to transpose my drawings into mosaics, which is also very much a collaboration. I wonder, when you were coming to think of this commission, was it pure pleasure to kind of put something this grand together? Or is there something daunting about it? Well, it's definitely daunting, but it was a great honor and pleasure to make it. I started at the beginning of the pandemic, so I really spent a year and a half or more just making the drawings, and I was working on that, and then the second year and a half was making the mosaics, which I went to Germany four times for also. Yeah, it's both. It's terrifying and exhilarating. You know, I mean, it's very rare in your life. I've had one other time in New York at the Eldridge Street Synagogue and Museum to make a very large stained glass window in collaboration with an architect, Debbie Gantz. And that was really the first thing I had in New York that was quite public. But, you know, this is much more so. You know, and I didn't think about making things in public till I was about 50 and then no one asked, so it's taken a long time. But, you know, I thought then you want to think about being a citizen and, and contributing to the public somehow. That's great. Well, Kiki, thank you very much for telling us about it. Thank you very much for speaking with me. Grand Central Madison opens later this month. The date is yet to be confirmed. 
And that's all for this week. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Amy Dawson, Henrietta Bentall and David Clack. And David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Yanis, Salvi and Kiki. And thank you for listening. See you next week for the last episode of this season, our review of 2022. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.